Welcome to the Spiritually Expressed Human, a show where being spiritual means unleashing the badass within, and being human means listening to your heart's voice instead of the one in your head. Together, Susan will help you navigate the murky waters of life's emotional and spiritual experiences, those that likely caused you to live by someone else's directions, and find your true north so that you can become the spiritually expressed badass you are meant to be. Now here's your host, Susan Desenzi. Welcome back to another episode of The Spiritually Expressed Human, where we navigate the human experience by understanding how to bridge the gap from where you are to where you want to be and show up as the spiritually expressed badass that you are. I am so excited to be back this week with another amazing guest. And this particular person I met through my work on Podcast Magazine, and his story was so incredibly powerful and so moving that I just had to bring him on my show directly to share with all of you even more of who this guy is. So welcome, first of all, before I even tell you a little bit about him, welcome to the house, Rob Lohman. I'm so excited and glad to have you here. Thank you for being here. Well, I am excited to spend a little bit of time with you and your listeners. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Rob. This is going to blow your mind, so listen carefully. Rob has been sober since 2001. And what that means is he had a drug and alcohol problem. And he has currently you know, suffered through so many things that he has now taken his work from his own suffering and his own life experience to helping others who suffer from substance abuse issues to really find freedom from addiction and incarceration. Now, Rob himself was incarcerated, and I'll I'll tell you a little bit about that, and we'll talk about that through the show. I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a minute. Now, he does this by sharing his testimonies, his professional interventions, He's a recovery coach and an advocate. He's also a self-published author, and he's also the host of his own podcast called Beyond the Bars Radio, which I just think that's amazing, Rob, because you've taken your experiences just beyond the bars, right? Yeah, well, I love the play on words because bars, we talk about the bars of addiction and, and alcoholism and then the bars of prison, and it's it's a lot of fun to use words to kind of create imagery. Yes, absolutely. And and you all know that one of my areas of specialty over my career as a therapist has been addictions and substance abuse, and that I used to work in a prison. So there's just this great synergy between Rob and I, and he looks a lot like my oldest brother. Which And he is one handsome looking guy. Oh, yeah. There you go. There you go. I love that. All right. Well, You know, again, Rob has really been through the ringer and, you know, you just keep bouncing back and bouncing back. You have, as as you put it, a rap sheet, literal and figuratively, that includes alcohol and drug addiction, gambling addiction, divorce, bankruptcies, mental health issues and suicidal ideation, prison and recovery and transformation. So my God, I mean, what a history. What what things you've bounced back from just speaking of that is like you're sitting here right now you have your own podcast you're a successful entrepreneur and a successful you know individual bouncing back from those things as well as a husband and a father my god so 
tell me a little bit about kind of in a in a short nutshell how did all this really kind of come about for you that landed you to where you are today yeah it's been a heck of a journey as you were talking about i'm kind of like a, a therapist gold mine if i needed therapy like on a consistent <laughs> basis but fortunately i've worked through a lot of that for me a lot of it you know it, it's it's crazy when you look back on it because i have been through so much in so many different chapters of my life. Mm-hmm. And I can just boil it down to I was just completely lost in really what my core was and who my real spiritual being was, because that's why I love the, what your show talks about, yeah. is what is the core of who I am that keeps me grounded? And I was so ungrounded for so long, I was just like a ship in the middle of a raging sea, just being tossed left and right. Not much center or no anchor. Yeah. And what do you think was kind of the cause of that? You know, I grew up in a, in a, in a great home. I, I had great parents, you know, we went to church and I don't know. I just feel like I was just wired differently than most kids. And yeah. when I found alcohol, a switch just kind of went on. I was like, Oh, this feels good. And that just became my thing for a quite a while after that. Do you think it was kind of a rebellion from growing up maybe in a great family dynamic where you did go to church and religion, and there's nothing wrong with religion, and we'll dive more into that throughout you know, our, our time now together, but do you think as a young man, maybe, that it was part of a rebellion against some of that in just kind of finding your own voice in your own way, that alcohol then became so like intriguing and like, wow, this feels good? Yeah, I didn't grow up in like a legalistic Christian home, so it wasn't really a rebellion. I can okay. reflect back on a couple incidences that made me feel really insecure. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that till way later on. Right. But at the time I, I just felt really insecure and I was trying to fit in. We moved from Fort Wayne, Indiana, where I was very comfortable as a kid. I had my cousins, my aunts, my uncles, grandparents. I mean, it was just a neat community. And then we moved to Texas when I was uh, in fourth grade. And from there, I just, I never really felt like I fit in. Oh, and it, yeah. And, and, and it was fascinating. I, I remember, well, anyway, I'll just, I'll answer that part for now. I can get into more of like the story of some things that made me feel insecure or I allowed to let me feel insecure, but I know I can pinpoint a couple things. And I think that started the trajectory of, I just don't know who really who I am. Cause I was your fun loving goofy kid that everyone loved. Yeah. I knocked on your door and you're like, what are you selling now, Rob? Is it magazine? So that part of me always stood out, but I don't know, man, alcohol just, hit me one time and it was always around. I got alcoholics all over my family, Mm -hmm. but it was just like a switch just kind of went on. And that's just kind of what I did for the next 15 years. Wow. You know, and that's, and when did you first kind of indulge in alcohol and first kind of find that out? How old were you? Oh gosh. Uh, A tween for sure. A pre, you know, pre tween, whatever, just, because it was always around like summers at the lake, there was always alcohol and people were partying. It was more summertime stuff, not really back home in my own house, but just Mm -hmm. the freedom of my friend's parents that liked to drink and you know, all those things. So no, I mean, I was definitely getting drunk at, I mean, I started, you know, drinking at 14 years old. So yeah, you know, but it was, it was around. So I know I had tasted it and seen the romance of it. And this is kind of fun. Right. And really see the drama and traumatic results of it. But, my brother was older and friends were older and they were already drinking and stuff. So it was just kind of, you know, let's, let's get a little buzzed. Well, and I think that's a big difference that you just hit on is that everybody can have grown up differently 
with alcohol in the home, maybe, where some grew up with it as a negative, right? It was used all the time at home. There was anger, there was fighting, there was, you know, disassociation, there was conflict, there was, you know, escapism, like they used alcohol as a stress reliever. But in your world, it sounds like it was used as this way to come together and you're at the lake and everybody's just kind of being fun and uninhibited and maybe goofy, right? And letting go and just enjoying. And so it it did kind of romanticize it to some degree. And then you experience it and like, wow, yeah, this feels great. You're feeling a bit insecure. And so it's easy then to just go, oh, well, this helps me feel less insecure, maybe. And it just becomes more of this love affair then, you know, and you know, as well as I do that in the addictions world that, you know, we, we really say that our drug of choice or our addictive behavior of choice is really like, is our lover, is our best friend. Yep. And do you think that that became over time kind of your best friend? When you can look at that, that was ingrained in almost a majority of the stuff that I did. I mean, even getting into high school and going to get drunk during lunch and coming back and drinking before I went to swim practice and drinking and driving all the time. And it was like going out on a date or, I mean, I was, it was just always around, but at home, (laughs) I remember at home, you know, my, my parents weren't big drinkers. My mom's parents were alcohol. My dad, my mom's dad was an alcoholic and there's just a lot of alcoholism on her side and my dad's side. But I remember they, you know, they liked Coors Light, which is just food colored water. <laughs> if, you, if you're an alcoholic drinking Coors Light, never mind. I don't want to say anything to sway you one way or the other, but uh, get some help. And <laughs> I remember in the fridge, I would like move, my brother would do this too, like move the Coors Light cans around. So you really couldn't tell one was missing, <laughs> but they knew, I mean, very, sure. very strategic, but it was, it was just like always just around and accessible. And I yeah. was like an older one in my class because I was a September baby. So, you know, I always had like the, like the first fake ID and I mean, just the, the stuff that we did, I have no clue how I'm alive except for God wanted me to be alive to do what I'm doing now. Yeah. Wow. Well, and I want to go back for a second to some of those, you know, things that you recognize later on or even at the time, but maybe didn't have the language for as a young man, the pieces that kind of led you to feel insecure you know, again, moving, my God, that, that at that age, fourth grade, when, you know, we are just beginning developmentally to kind of bridge that gap between leaving childhood behind and coming into this tweenish teenager place at nine, 10 years old, which is, I assume what you were about at fourth grade Yep. and leaving all your friends and the comfort of what you've known to this brand new state and community Already that's going to, my God, we moved a lot. So I I get it. I mean, we moved so many times because of my dad's job. And so I always felt like I didn't fit in in the outsider because I was the brand new kid. And so that already is the case. What were some of those additional things then that kind of created some of the insecurities for you? Yeah, I remember one time it was, I got put in a magnet program when I was in sixth grade. Okay. And it was this new kind of thing they were trying out back in Fort Worth, Texas. And it was, you know, like for smart kids to go into whatever magnet program this other school was. And ironically enough, it was kind of like a reverse segregation. 
because they took a bunch of white kids and put them in an all black school because there was ah. this magnet program. And, mm-hmm. and I, ha- I got ridiculed and it was just things like that, that. I just, I begged my parents to get me out of there. And this is nothing against my parents, but I just, I needed to get out of there, but we, we had committed to a certain length of time in this program mm. and I just had to suck it up and get through it. But there was just some things that happened that made me feel real insecure as just, as just a young boy. Yeah. Sure. And coupling with that, I remember, uh, this is a story I didn't really usually share publicly because it's kind of like, really? But, but, but you don't think about it at the time, right? Right. And I remember I was on a, um, it was a church retreat. So just because church, go to church retreats doesn't mean always good things happen at these things. <laughs> yeah, true. And, and I remember uh, we were all going to like raid the girls, you know, dorm room or whatever, just to scare them and stuff. And we were just kind of running through the woods and, you know, whatever. And I had to go to the bathroom. So I, you know, dropped my pants and went to the bathroom behind a tree and I didn't know anything about any of this until we were leaving the next day or a couple of days later, whatever it was. And one of the guys said that, you know, Rob had, Rob didn't have any pubic hair. And he, I, I was like at the point where you probably didn't even need to have it or whatever. But what I recall from that moment was everyone on the bus, which I'm sure it didn't happen this way, but it was like everyone on the bus goes, and this is the, the, the song I have in my head was Robbie, Robbie was a bear. Robbie, Robbie has no hair. And I just remember this feeling of being completely ridiculed where it Mm -hmm. could have been like just one person. But for me, it was that big, like all the heads get really big and they're surrounding you like in a, in a movie or something. But I did not know that that affected me until way later in my life. Yeah. But those were two instances, which really made me feel very insecure as a young boy. I mean, that's like what boys define themselves by a lot of times is like, you know, those things. But I didn't know, and I didn't talk to my dad about it. My dad, you know, I love him to death. We have a great relationship now, but he was just kind of that distant father that I, I, I don't know. I, I don't remember him like he even teaching me how to shave and stuff. But in his generation, that was when dads were just kind of out and about and not really around a lot. Yeah. Well, and, and absolutely. I mean, it, it's like, you, you know, you miss school, you skip school, if you ever did skip school, and you go to school the next day. And the teacher says something and looks right at you when they say it. And you're sitting there thinking, oh, they know that I really wasn't sick yesterday. They know that I missed on purpose. And they have no clue. I mean, this is actually how, like, I'm a parent of a 29-year-old young uh, man, right? You know, a son. And I remember when he was little, because I had remembered feeling those things like you talked about, like, everybody's staring at you or everybody knows or like the teacher knows when they don't know and going, how can I use this to my advantage? Because I know we think this as kids, right? So how can I use this to my advantage as a parent with my son when I suspect something or I want to get more information, right? And so I would just act like I knew and then he would be convinced that I did know when I had no clue of anything and he would reveal something and i in my mind i'd be like aha but as a parent i would be like aha blah 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 and so it is strange how we as children and young adults do ab- absolutely think those things and it just gets so blown up in our minds kind of imagination and our minds eye based on the little bit we see that it does affect us so as time went on then like one of the interesting things you said too was like going out and drinking at lunch and drinking before swim practice. So wait, you were on a swim team swimming and yet you're drinking 
Is that correct? Prior to your like swim practices and swim meets? There are correct statements in what you just said. Yes. <laughs> not, not swim meets, swim practice. Not swim meets. Okay. But swim practices. Yeah. And your coach never knew? Well, let's, let's, let's dissect that for a minute. And I, what, one thing I want to say to like listeners out there and stuff too, is that like, I have a 12 and a 10 year old now, 12 year old son and a 10 year old daughter. Mm-hmm. And I share a lot with them. Like that story about, you know, Robbie, Robbie was a bear. Yeah. I share that with my son because I wanted to just kind of understand and going through life. Right. You know, it's like girls, like some, some are going to have bigger parts. Some are going to have smaller. I mean, those things, but it's what God gave you. So right. embrace what you're given yeah. or pay $20,000 get changed. You know what I mean? And that does right. not where you accept create other insecurities, but your question about, uh, gosh, I just forgot what your question was. Oh, the drinking before swim practices oh, yeah. and your coach never knew. So my swim coach. <laughs> so, after lunch, this was more like senior year type stuff, right? Mm-hmm. After lunch, I went to be the teacher's aide, which happened to be my swim coach, which was also the math coach. And so she just kind of, cause I was, I was, I was all right. I, mean, I was a pretty good swimmer, but she just kind of turned a blind eye. I was like, yeah, I don't have anything for you to do. They just go and take the rest of the day off. Okay. So as I started recognizing in a couple of us, like who were, we're like drunk at swim practice right now. This is not a good thing. Wow. So I just pretty much pulled out of swimming and just quit, quit swimming. Cause I was good at swimming and I probably could have gone far in it. But as they say, you put alcohol and potential in the same situation and alcohol kicks potentials, butt most of the time. Yeah. So I just quit swimming. Wow. So how does this progress then through your high school and potentially college years to you know, I don't want to jump totally ahead yet, but how does this progress to include potential drugs and gambling and some of the other things that ultimately down the road led to incarceration? Yeah. So drinking started around 14, gambling started around 16. And those were just things that we just did. Right. Mm-hmm. So then I go to college and I promised myself I would never do drugs. I'm not going down because I, whatever I tried, I liked, right. Mm -hmm. You know, I I enjoyed sex and, you know, enjoyed that a lot. And I enjoyed drinking and gambling. But I remember in high school or in college, uh, a friend of mine had some pot. I was like, Hey, you want to smoke some pot? I'm like, okay, fine. May as well try it. And loved it. Like, it was just like, I mean, I completely vividly remember right now sitting on Mike, Mike's bed with a bunch of other people. And just like, I was rowing the boat. Like I thought I was in a boat, but I wasn't, there was no boat. It was just me sitting on the bed. Yeah. Hilarious. So I, I did, I just, anything I tried, I liked. And so I knew warning signs were up to don't do, don't try this stuff. But college was just a big blur. I'll just tell you that. I don't know if stuff happened freshman year or senior year, but I just, I was drunk a lot. And the problem was I was really smart and I knew I could get an A if I had to get an A, but I didn't care if I got an A. Mm-hmm. I was pre-med. I wanted to be a doctor like my grandpa. But when I was on campus for a, this special month or month and a half of studying for the MCATs, I was partying with the underclassmen, right? And so just, I mean, really college, we'll just sum it up to, I was drunk a lot. I borrowed several cars without permission, which I later found out was Grand Theft Auto and just did things, almost got kicked out of college a couple of times. But my parents, they had an inkling, but they had no clue how bad it was. Wow. And before my senior year of college, I was up in Northern Michigan and I told my car in a drunk driving accident. First major thing that mm. came, came my way, but I didn't get hurt at all. 
I had no physical ramifications except my shoulder hurt. So senior year of college, I mean, I went to college, weighed about 150. I left college about 210, put a lot of weight on my senior year. But coming up to the to senior year, I had no clue if I was going to graduate or not because my GPA was too low Wow, to graduate. But yet both sets of grandparents, because again, I was from four, I was, I went to college, I went back to Indiana for college. So all my cousins came, like everyone that was there came down for graduation. In the morning of graduation, I still did not know if I was going to graduate. Wow. Yeah. How? And I'm feeling like this total, like, like hypocrite, this chameleon, like, again, I'm totally lost, right? You talk about like spiritual conditioning out the window mm-hmm. and all these things. But the morning of, gra- of graduation, my, my uh, biology teacher called me in and he said, Loman, get in my office. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm not going to graduate. This is going to be horrible. Like, my dad is going to kill me. And he brought me in and he shows me his five-page test. And he's like, what, what did you do all semester? Not first page, 98, 99. He goes through all five pages of the test. And he goes, these are the highest scores I've ever seen on my test. I've been a professor for a long time. What? the heck were you doing? And I just said, did I graduate? He said, yes. And so I ran out the door and went to graduation. You know, and it was just, I never had serious consequences because I was, uh, I manipulated situations a lot. Yeah. And I grew up as a Christian and all these things had these values, but I wasn't living by them at all. It was just something I did, you know, and in, in, in my own faith, it was like, you know, it was my savior. I was going to go to heaven, I feel like, but there was no like following not not a set of rules, but just trying to be like, yeah, more like Jesus for me. And I just wasn't striving for that. So I graduated college, first one of my family graduating four years up to that point. And then afterwards, like all my cousins and amazing kid people just, you know, it was like a, I don't know, it was just a different generation of people in our family and graduated college and had another direction of where I wanted to go, which it ended up not going that way either. And it sounds you said something really important. It sounds like, you know, you were given this foundation through the church and religion, right? Growing up as a Christian. And first, let me ask: Were you going to church still through college? When I came home for Christmas and went with my parents, but okay, not, but um, just not on my that, own accord, not yeah. on your own. Yeah. So it sounds like you know you were given these foundations, but they became labels. They became this. Like I am this, right? I am this Christian. I am this. I have this religious faith. I do these things periodically when I was younger, maybe every weekend. But now as I'm older, like you said, when I come home with my family, but you weren't really embodying any of that at all. And you're feeling, you know, incredibly lost, insecure, unsure, no consequences are happening. So there's no reason for you to change, right? You are this really smart, brilliant guy who can basically blow off a whole semester and still ultimately get some of the highest scores on a test because you put your mind to it, you're brilliant, you can study your butt off, and boom, no consequence, you get to graduate. So then after college, you know, because, and, and this was around what time, like around how old were you and about how many years ago was that? So I graduated college in 1994. Okay. 94. Yeah. So I'm 48 now. If anyone wants, I'll just help you. And say, instead of people trying to do the math, I'm 48 now. So yeah. So it was, uh, you know, I'd say half of my life ago, I graduated from college. Right. Well, because I know that, uh, that, you know, and I want to hear more kind of about your story and what led up to this, but I know that it became 
a crucial, critical, literally do or die situation in you know June of 2001 when a suicide attempt that you were participating in was interrupted by the compassion of your dog, Jake. Yep. And so I, I want, because this is all so relevant to how you found that sense of spirituality and spiritualness for you that you were able to tap into ultimately that then led you to a place of recovery and a place of human expression, navigating through this human experience in a much more authentic and deeper way than what it felt like. Like, did you feel in those earlier years, like you were authentically being you, even though you were feeling kind of lost? Did you feel like you were kind of living authentically you for whatever that meant for you at the time? No, because I had internal conflict because I, I feel like I lived a life as a chameleon. Okay. And chameleons just blend in mm -hmm. to any situation. And I was really good at that. And there's a huge project coming down the road about, you know, living life as a chameleon that I'm, that I'm working on right now. But yeah, I, I felt in conflict with being at home and being like, oh, in front of girlfriend's parents. And I'm just like, I can't wait to go home and get out of here and go sleep with you, you know? And it was like, yeah. oh, going to church. And so for me, it was, I, I, I dealt with a lot of conflict and mm -hmm. I became very empty inside. And, you know, all the years between college and from when I got sober, it's just, you know, insert story in there. It's like drunk driving every night, partying every night, just all these things going on. And I was very conflicted with, like, I never had these prayers like, God, get me out of this. I'll never do it again. Mm -hmm. And just say, God, I know you're keeping me alive for a bigger purpose. Ah. But God, I just need help because I knew there was more in store for me because um, I didn't really become suicidal until later on in my life because things were just going downhill way too fast and I didn't know how to get out of it. Yeah. So for, for me, it was just kind of like party guy, fun guy, who no major consequences. Mm -hmm. I know I can get out of this. And then things definitely started changing around uh, 19, like 1999. I ended up getting married for the first time. And, you know, my addiction, both addicts drank differently, used differently. Alcohol affected us differently in a lot of ways. And it was definitely a marriage not based on a whole lot of foundation, except for, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to say anything in disregard in case, you know, Kendi's ever listening, but just, we just weren't, didn't have a great solid marriage. Yeah. Well, sometimes, you know, it's like my first husband and I, we were oil and water. We loved each other very much. There was a lot of good parts to us being together, but ultimately there was more unhealthy to us and to our relationship that really how I've kind of always viewed it since has been a very oil and water situation. He passed about 10 years ago and, and my son is his biological son. I cried it like a baby at his funeral, even though I've been with my husband at that point, I'd been with my, I was with my current husband for 10 years at that point. We've been together almost, well, 20 now. I cried like a baby because there were so many beautiful aspects to him. We just were very unhealthy together. So it sounds kind of like you guys got together. There was this like awesome dynamic in the beginning. And even if you were aware of certain things, just like you were aware that you need help, and there are issues you weren't jumping on that awareness. Sounds like kind of the same thing. Like you got together, you were aware of things, and you both did nothing about that until it came to a head. 
Yeah. Very emotionally and relationally immature. Yeah. Yeah. Because right? you, you start drinking at such a young age, you know, our frontal cortex has a hard time developing and things like that too. And when yeah. your relationships aren't based on pure things, then there you go. So were you with your first wife when kind of your first experience of feeling suicidal came to be a reality for you? It was growing. I, I started wanting more in my life. Right. And again, when our, in our relationship, again, I was, I had several girlfriends and now wife at the time that just said, it's it, really hard to get deep with you. Like there's just this block of maturity. Right. Mm-hmm. So in our journeying together, I started wanting more. Like I didn't want to have a drunk marriage. Yeah. I didn't want to have a marriage based on, you know, sex and good times. Mm-hmm. And, and so for me, I started wanting more. And I remember I went away on a business trip and it's kind of like when you feel like you're done, you're just done. Mm-hmm. Right. But I went away on a business trip and I just had asked her, you know, a couple of things said, you know, please go see your doctor and, and please, you know, deal with some of this kind of emotional health struggles and, things that, that she was going through where there are just steps that she wasn't willing to take. So for me, I just went away, went on the week and just realized I wanted more. And if these certain things weren't done while I was gone, then I was done with the marriage. Mm-hmm. I just had gotten to that point. Okay. And so I came home and those things I had asked weren't, weren't followed through with. So I had already bought her a one-way plane ticket back to Texas and just knew I was done. No marriage counseling, none of that. I was just, I was just done. It was, that's just kind of, how our relationship was for me personally. And I think you've hit on something else, which will, will tie in, you know, here shortly as well to that spiritual kind of expression, but you knew what you knew. Right. And, and it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like you had this deeper awareness of wanting something more. You didn't act on it necessarily earlier years, but there was always that, like what I call that, that knowingness, that flavor of there's something missing. There's something more. I don't know what it is and how to get it. So I engage in all this other stuff over here thinking that I'll find it and I don't, and I get deeper and deeper into the vortex of it. And then I reach some place where I do grow tired of it enough. Like I do reach that point of no return where it is a choice of do or die. And I don't mean literally physically die. It's like take action or don't. But if I don't take action, I will keep getting the same result, that insanity, right? And I really can't take that anymore. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Today's episode has been brought to you by our sponsor, True Visionaries Incorporated, an organization dedicated to helping you become a true visionary of your own life. If you're dealing with any kind of stress day-to-day or stress related to the pandemic, then go to www.susandesenzi.com forward slash stress toolkit to download your free stress toolkit guide. Thanks so much for listening. Now back to the show. So it sounds like you finally acted upon that, got to that place. Did things start shifting for you then, or did they kind of shift in some positive ways, but then also went down some other kind of unhealthy routes too? <laughs> yeah, both. Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'd, I'd say both. It's kind of like as, as your show is, you know, my spiritual being was crying out to be fed 
Yeah. But my human experience was just like chaotic. Yeah. Right. So, so in the midst of this, when we kind of agreed that getting divorced was probably our, you know, our best option mm-hmm. uh, for me, it was kind of like freedom at a time of just kind of, woohoo, I'm just going to go crazy for a little while in this part. But what started happening was because I hated who I was, I started wanting more in my life because I hated who I had become. Sure. And I mean, I would close bars down and then drive three hours to a casino in Northern Michigan, or I'm sorry, Southern Michigan, Northern Indiana and come home. But I wouldn't have no clue. I was even gone for those seven to 10 hours. Wow. Complete blackouts, right? It was scary. Wow. And I would start having moments of driving North on the highway in like Fort Wayne, Indiana. And I would see my car veer off and I'd be still driving North, but I'd see my car go, you know, Northwest and hit a median and blow up and explode. I would see myself actually physically dead. And so I, I, I was wanting a lot more, but I didn't know how to get out of this rut of, of drinking and sleeping around and gambling and drinking and sleep around gambling and drinking and gambling. And so I, I was really hating who I had becoming, but I was, I don't know if you want to call it going delusional or something, but in those moments of actually seeing yourself, which I now understand is called suicide ideation, I did not know what was happening to me at that point. But I'm definitely not going to tell somebody, hey, guess what I guess what happened to me last night I, or this morning. Right. I saw myself veer off and die, and it happened again and again and again. Yeah. So my, I'd say my inner, my spirit was just saying, stop this. Like almost, like I want to like, it's like, it's like weeping like right now telling you like, stop. Yeah. You're killing yourself. Yeah. And I wanted to kill myself and almost did on the night of June, you know, the night of June 7th, early morning, June 8th, however you want to call it, just had a a dramatic experience that was so incredible that I, I knew at that point that, I mean, literally it was that time to change. And I was hanging out in the bar in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and I went, like I said, I went out every night. I drank and drove, I say seven nights, you know, eight nights a week because <laughs> it was every night. But Morris. I partied, but I was like, but I was physically fit. I looked good. I had a bunch of girlfriends. Like for on the outside, you're kind of like, oh, Loman, if you're like a shallow minded person, you're like, you got it all together. Right. I, oh my was, God. Yes. I was $68,000 in credit card debt. You know, no one knew that, but I sure looked good when I bought everyone drinks at the bar. Yeah. Right. So I'm hanging out in the bar this evening and there was, you know, music hanging out and, and all of a sudden the bar got completely dead silent. I audibly heard the words, you're done. And then the bar got extremely loud again. So talk about having a spiritual experience. I looked at my buddy, Sean, and I go, dude, I got to go home. No clue what just happened. I put down my big, like 40 ounce Foster's oil can, you know, those old beers. And I drove home that night and I, was reflecting on this, you know, about a year ago. And I thought, you know, I was like literally sober, but drunk that evening because mm-hmm. something just happened. that was spiritual, but I was highly intoxicated. And I drove home and I live in a little one bedroom apartment in Fort Wayne, Indiana. So I opened the bottom door and walked up 12 flights of stairs and walked right past my dog, Jake, and put about 350 pounds on the barbell on my workout bench and laid down on my workout bench, kind of on autopilot picked up that barbell and just unhinged my elbows to drop the bar right across my chest and kill myself. Oh my God. And in that moment, and these are fleeting seconds of time, like nanoseconds, I believe that God intervened and revealed himself to me 
through my dog, Jake, because I looked at his eyes and I just saw depth. I was like, felt like God was just saying to me, who is going to feed him tomorrow? Wow. And so my first thought was, Jake, who's going to feed Jake? Who's going to feed you in the morning when I'm dead here in the living room? I started thinking about my amazing mom and my dad and my brother and all the good stuff in my life. And so I just know it was God holding that bar. Like, okay, Rob, time, let's go. It's getting heavy. Not that it's heavy for him, but he put the bar back on the, on the workout rack and there's 350 pounds on this barbell. I could probably lift 225 on my own. Wow. Right. So I was just ready to kill myself and take myself out of the game. And just something divine happened that evening that, that's the only way I can explain it. It was just a divine spiritual experience where I immediately felt different. So what does spirituality or spiritualness mean to you? Internal peace. Internal peace, yeah. Because that night when I, I slept in peace for the first time in years, and the next morning I literally meant to call my Aunt Carol, who's now passed away. Love you, Aunt Carol. She'd been sober 25 years at the time. I meant to call her in the morning because she lived in Fort Wayne, Indiana, but I dialed my parents' number and just said, Mom, Dad, I can't quit drinking and I need help. And that was the prayer, the answer prayer my mom had prayed for years, just knowing I was off a little bit. Ah. And my Aunt Carol came and she took me to my first meeting of recovery in Fort Wayne, Indiana, parked on the curb. We walked straight to the back of this bar, right down this galley, galley bar, right, right to the back room to my first recovery meeting of intention. I was forced by the courts before to do this, but recovery meeting of intention and people were happy. They were laughing. They were talking about freedom and all this stuff. And I was like, I'm here. And I did not go through any detox or withdrawal. And I have not had a craving ever since that day. And I was a guy that could drink up to like two bottles of scotch a day. That is divine in and of itself. Right. Because I, I and, and I believe that when we reach that place and we tap back into, again, whether you all believe in soul or spirit or God or grace, whether you call it religion, spirituality, you know, I have my beliefs. Rob has his beliefs and every right. guest who will ever come on will have their own beliefs. And I will always honor all of them. But for me personally, I do believe in God. I do believe in soul. I do believe in spirit. And I believe in a divine grace that when we tap into that deepest part of ourself and we reconnect or fully connect to that, even if it's for a fleeting moment, that quote unquote miracles can and do happen a hundred percent. And it is really, truly all about the belief. So somewhere in that moment, you really had that belief that. I am meant for more. And I get that because when I was 27, as a lot of you may already remember, I was standing in front of a mirror with my suicide note in hand that I just written to my then two-year-old son. And I had this recollection of myself at four standing in front of a mirror saying, you are meant for so much more, right? you know, that, that there is more to you than this. And it was, I knew that I had a decision to make. And I'm not going to say that the next, the last 28 years since that night have been easy by any stretch of the imagination. A lot more shit happened throughout those years. <laughs> yeah. But 
it was like that moment I reconnected and I never lost that thread after that again. So I get that because this was, this was prior. Now you've been sober since 2001, right? Yes. But you hadn't gone to prison yet, had you? No. And the, okay, so see, there's always more to the there's story. There's always who, more. Stay tuned. Yes. Who said that? Who was the famous guy that always says, I don't know why I can't think of his oh, name. Yeah. So uh, was, was, like, was it Walter Cronkite? Was like, it, there's, more there's more to the story. To the story. Yeah. Okay. So that night, you, you know, you, that next day you reach out for help. And, and it's interesting. You said your first recovery meeting, you had to actually walk through a bar to get to the back, to of, the the bar, back yeah. of the bar. Yeah. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So you go to your recovery meetings. How is life changing for you in positive ways and not so positive ways? Radically different. All positive. All positive. I, mean, I, I, I was on a pink cloud in recovery for, for, for years and years and years after that. I mean, I got rid of, you know, which I wish I wouldn't have done this now sometimes, but I got rid of like anything in my apartment that wasn't pure. Like I got rid of my docking CDs and warrant and any music that didn't breathe life into me. I started listening to worship music. I even threw my television out. My neighbors probably thought I was crazier the weeks after I got sober than I was prior to like, yeah. cause I was just, but, but all those things. So, I mean, I just became Mr. Recovery and made some, some strategic moves and locations based on help from sponsor and advisors in my life. Cause I sought out advisors and people mm-hmm. said, Hey, you know, but I just, I never had any cravings. Like, I, I could care less about alcohol or sex or anything. It was just like, I was just a new person and it, and it was great for a while. So all of it diminished the, the drinking, the, the, the drugs, the gambling, sex, all of it never had. I mean, I, I only did drugs really when I was drinking, but, oh, you know, okay. it took, it took about a month or so to quit, quit the tobacco use, mm-hmm. applying the principles I'd used in recovery for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, just stuff, it was just like, dude, a, a lot of it was gone. Now, again, at the time it was just gone. Now I look back, I'm like, man, it would have been good to do some therapy and some counseling and stuff like that. But I just, I really embraced the 12 steps and cleared out the wreckage of my past and mm-hmm. to the best of my ability at the time with the tools that I had. Sure. You know, so I, I know from our conversations previous and things you've written regarding your history that it sounds like, and forgive me if I have this incorrectly, but it sounds like for about the next 10, 11 years, Things were going along, you know, pretty well with this, but you were still kind of riding these emotional roller coasters to some degree, right? Yeah. Part of it was, so when I got sober, I was single, mm-hmm. right? And then again, I got had a big calling in my life with a bunch of other stuff I was doing in my life, which was really cool from, you know, right, doing a documentary, writing my first book and a lot of these things, every, I believe everything I'm doing like right now, our conversation is leading to something else. I don't know what it is. Yeah. Someone that's listening to it's going to say, hey, man, I'd love what, whatever. That was dumb or this, whatever. It's always leading somewhere, okay? And, and history shows that in my life. But you know, I wasn't married and didn't have kids and didn't own a business, right? So in 2006, I ended up meeting my amazing wife, Jennifer. Hey, babe. And again, I, I remember I said earlier, I was emotionally immature. Okay. And dealt with, I call it intimacy anorexia, as one of my colleagues in the field says, right? Um, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so I get, so get married, you know, we got married in a short amount of time. Uh, her dad was dying of cancer and, you know, there were so many just God shots in her life that says this, the, you two are supposed to be together, mm-hmm. you know, and for a huge purpose. And 
then we got we got married and then we had our first son in 2007 and he's now 12 he's an amazing young, amazing young man and got married so now I'm a father right yeah. and then I didn't really have a strong career at the time because I was working on this big Christian music festival in Colorado which ended up happening in in 2008 and then professionally the company I was working for went under and then I moved into being a, a full-time insurance agent, starting my own insurance agency. I do not recommend that to anyone listening right now that has young kids and a wife that works full-time. Run the other <laughs> way. Run. Run the other way. But it, I had ambition. And I've always been a yeah. doer. Yeah. I don't just sit around like, a, as my wife will say, you know, like my husband never just sits there and eat bonbons. Yeah. I'm a passionate entrepreneur visionary, right? Right. But at the time, I didn't have a whole lot of professional guidance. But anyway, so I started my own insurance agency, did that for about two and a half years. And in the midst of that, my daughter was born in 2010. Amazing daughter. She's now 10. And, but I started putting things on the back burner that were healthy for me in early recovery. Okay. So now we're talking about the year 2010, 2011 ish. So that's nine, 10 years after you first become sober. Yeah. 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 But one other thing was active in my life was I never dealt with my gambling addiction. Uh, so you gave up drugs and alcohol, which drugs were just a small part, but you yeah. gave up the alcohol and the drugs and the tobacco, Yep. but you didn't give up gambling throughout all of this. I didn't know I needed to. Oh, so you didn't see it as an addictive I process. Didn't see it as, for I didn't see it as a major problem because there wow. wasn't a ton of collateral damage, but while I own my insurance agency, I was gambling a lot. My wife mm -hmm. had no clue. I would sneak off to the casinos because we had, we had kind of, we had kind of a rough marriage and now we can look back on it and realize that we both create these false narratives about the other person. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Which weren't true. It was more wounds of our past, but, but regards say neither of us knew that neither of us knew that either one was thinking these things. So we create these false narratives about each other. So there wasn't a lot of trust in for various reasons on both sides, whatever the reasons were, it doesn't matter. But for me, you know, I wasn't a very financially responsible person mm -hmm. at the time. My wife had no clue what was going on in my business, had no clue I was maxing out credit cards, taking cash advances here and there to go buy scratch tickets because it was easier to do in town instead of drive off to the casino hour and a half, two hours away where somebody might see me. So a lot of manipulation, a lot of lies. But for me, I was I had gotten to a point where, you know, there are a lot of, I believe in the spiritual world and spiritual attacks and spiritual, you know, from good and evil and whatever your faiths are of, you know, like you know, God and the devil and all these things. Right. Right. So there were just a lot of spiritual attacks going on in our personal life and my wife's life and my life. And we both, you know, still like love Jesus. But when you come with going a certain direction, you could be battled to go the other way. Right. And so the wheels were falling off in my insurance agency. I couldn't keep up with my sales numbers. And my wife was completely exhausted from her job at the radio station where she worked. And just we're running on, you know, our adrenals were shot. We just were not healthy with two young kids. Unfortunately, they're the collateral damage of our stress and things going on. So August or October 31st, 2011, I ended up losing my insurance agency. Hmm. I saw it coming, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, I saw it coming, but, but just prior to this, I mean, I was so lost because I wasn't going to my recovery meetings for a couple of years. I wasn't tapping into church. I wasn't tapping into mentors. I isolated myself from a lot of people in my insurance office. So can I stop you there for a second? 
and and hold that thought. I apologize, but you said something really kind of important and I want to clarify. So during the time when you were heavily involved in recovery, you were relying on the 12 steps, your mentors, church, friends, all of those pieces. Did you feel more connected and less quote unquote lost? And as you diminished going, did you feel more lost again then? Or did you kind of always feel a bit lost, but more connected and less lost? No, I felt extremely connected in early recovery. Like, okay. I mean, I had a great philosophy. Nothing bugged me. I was like, things happen for a reason. Like I was very in tune with myself and my faith mm-hmm. and all these things. So definitely that. But over time, I started losing confidence in myself. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't around the people that breathed good life into me. And then here I am back to kind of where I was before I got sober. Right. I, was, I wasn't like who I was becoming. I was short. I was distant. I, I, wouldn't, I just would, in this intimacy anorexia term I threw around earlier, what I realize now is when you look back on it, I was intentionally withholding love from my wife because I was angry at her about certain things. Yeah. You know, and then she had her own stuff going on her side where these false narratives were really strong, but we didn't know what they were. It was just, we just weren't that close. Now, granted, when my wife talks about this period of our time, she was excited about what was going on because it was like, okay, we just need to reconnect as a family. As husband and wife, even though I was getting, I, I just lost my insurance agency, right? Yeah. And my wife had just quit her job a month after I lost my agency because she just was not feeling healthy physically. Yeah. You know, and those things. So she was kind of like, didn't know it was this bad in my head. I created this whole image like, my marriage sucks, all this stuff, ah, 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 you know, and, and she wasn't really quite there, but, you know, it just wasn't great. And so, yeah, so I, it, in early recovery, I felt very connected, kind of like my childhood faith. But then as these pressures came, I started feeling inadequate. And, you know, again, there were certain things just going on that, that I told myself. I used to blame people, but that's just blaming. That's just a cop-out where really I internalized whatever was going on into you suck. Oh, absolutely. You're a horrible it's horrible we totally project all that internal stuff from our past that's running kind of on that very conscious and, and super, you know, kind of subconscious level. And then we put it out there and blame everybody else and tell those false narratives and believe them as absolute truths. Yeah. So that's why I wanted to make the distinction before you went on that in those earlier parts of your recovery, you really did and were dealing with a lot of those, you know, the past conditioning, the thoughts, the beliefs, the things, the narratives that you learned to believe were true about you or the world around you. It sounds like you really were dealing with those and feeling more connected to yourself and, you know, the world around you and that kind of spiritual place, that soul level place within yourself. But as you fell away, some of those pieces that were still very ingrained in you then became larger took over and made you feel more distant and disconnected again. Would that be a fair summarization? Very. Okay. So then how did you, so then go on. So how did you get to that place then? So interestingly enough, as I started hating who I was again, you know, and yeah. I started, I started actually self-harming myself. Oh, I didn't have drugs or substances, but I had gambling. Yeah. That, that wasn't giving me the dopamine. As we talked about the dopamine hits I needed anymore. Right. Right. It's, it's, luster of, of deception, I guess, in some ways. Yeah. 
but what I had started doing about four to four months or so before this was I would sit in my insurance office before I lost the agency and I would stare at like piles of paper. Mm -hmm. I was paralyzed. I'm like, I didn't know who to call. I didn't know which pile, whatever. So I, one night, I don't, I don't know where it came from. Never heard anyone do this. Never saw it. I just took my fist and I clocked myself in the side of the head. Wow. Yeah. And there was this like flash of light, right? Kind of like a, I don't know what, I don't know what that does, what that's called in the brain. But when I did that, I literally, it was like a lightning bolt. Like I saw like, you know, not like a external spiritual experience, but like in my eyes or my vision. Yeah. And I was like, huh. And I, I'd get back to work. So what I realized is that was my way of self-harming, like a couple shots someone will do or something. And then that became kind of a pattern for me where sometimes I would, I mean, it's to watch this would be devastating to see someone do this to themselves. Oh my God. Yeah. And no one ever saw it, but to the point where I would literally like the, the temple, like right above where my glasses were and stuff on the side. Um, I mean, it would be so sore. I couldn't touch it for a couple of days. Wow. But I didn't tell anyone about it. I couldn't tell my wife because she already thought I was, I, I, I actually, let me rephrase that. I had convinced myself that my wife thought I was kind of a loser in the providing for my family side of things. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. No matter what she said or what she did or anything like that, I told myself that she thought this way about me. Yeah. And that's where I got a lot of my identity from, not from where I do now from my faith in Christ, any of that stuff, which is why I'm so big now on finding your worth in who you are inside, what your spiritual being really Yes. Not not what's going on outside. And I'm, that's the message I preach to people now is you have to know who you are. You just, I'm so passionate about it. Like I get emotional because if you don't know who you are, someone else is going to define it. Which is exactly why my corporate name is True Visionaries. It's about living your own vision, uncovering who you are at the core, whatever that means for you. It, it, it's not this predefined expectation, notion, ideology, past conditioning, parental framework, like none of that stuff matters. It's when you lay your head down on the pillow at night, who are you and how do you choose and want to express from the very core of your being and become that that visionary for your own life? Because when you do that, that's where I believe you really tap in and live from that spiritual expression through the human experience and you can navigate it then even when it's tough and you're on the roller coaster because after this point was when you went to prison so that uh-huh. hadn't even happened yet and yet nope. you're still like you've come through that so i i want to keep going because yeah. i want people to really understand that this wasn't some easy ride for you. Like, Oh, I, I, I almost, you know, ended my life that night and I didn't, and I became sober and then I was sober for all these years and it was grand. And yeah, yeah, I lost an agency, but, and yeah, I had some rocky parts of my marriage, but it's like, no, there was still a lot more crap that was coming. Yeah. And who knew, right? I mean, you just, you don't see his, his, you don't see mental break. I mean, externally people can probably see mental breakdowns coming, but I didn't see this coming. And so I lose my agency. My wife quits her job, you know, then February, 2012 comes along Mm -hmm. and everything was crashing down internally for me, but no one else knew that it was just 
you know, and I was, I was just making rational decisions and, you know, again, talk about like spiritual kind of battling and warfare going and yeah, I'm not talking about like demons flying out of me and like, you know, right. comes down with the thing and kills it. But, but just there's a spiritual, we live in a spiritual world. Right. And like you said, we're spiritual beings. Right. So my human experience is pretty crappy at this point. And so one night it was uh, February 14th, 2012. And we're all just hanging out at home and having like a good, like Valentine day, day, you know, and, uh, my kids haven't going to bed. I'm a late owl. I always have been ever since like high school. Right. So people go to bed and I stay up. We, my wife and I watched a, a, what you, you would consider an inspirational movie. Mm-hmm. Okay. But the message in the movie in the beginning was a mess. And this is not related to my dad because this is more of my interpretation of the world around me. Right. But it was a, 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 a man that had not measured up to his father's expectations. He was never good enough for his father. Okay. So for me, it wasn't my dad. It was just, I was just not good enough. Yeah. That's the message I've been telling myself. So this whole me- thing's about that. So you're watching it. There's a great redemption in the show at the end. But what I am experiencing is you still suck. Like you are the guy that's stuck on the golf course that cannot win a tournament, mm-hmm. you know, in these things. So all the message I created myself was they were, it was just, it was just all happening and I didn't know what was happening. And so my wife goes to bed. I decided to stay up and work on a side project and a, looking for a job because I didn't have any income really coming in at the time. And I get this idea to just say, forget that. I'm just going to clean my house. Now, for you OCD people out there that don't know your OCD, I didn't know I had a problem with clutter, but my life was clutter. Right. Everything was clutter in my life. You know, there's not much I had control of at all. Right. And so I decided to get up and just clean our townhouse because we were remodeling our kitchen for an incident that had happened in the year before. So everything was just out of sorts. And all I remember is I got up to start cleaning the house and then I pretty much mentally disappeared for a brief period of time. And in the midst of that, I had grabbed a box of matches and set some stuff on fire on our patio. Just kind of trying to get rid of the clutter, like burn it up and you, you know, you even, even through counseling, you had no, no, at the time I was not thinking at all. It was just yeah. happening. Yeah. Sort of like put 350 pounds on a barbell and just getting dropped on your throat without thinking about it. Right. Yeah. So kind of like autopilot, if you will, mm-hmm. again. So in the midst of that, you know, realized I couldn't stop it. It was just not stoppable, but it was still on the patio. So I remember shutting the door and I run upstairs to rip my wife out of bed. It was like one thirty in the morning. She grabs my two-year-old daughter out of her crib. And I go get my four-year-old son out of his bed and we run downstairs and the fire is still outside. And so still not knowing like how bad it is or anything like that. Like my wife's putting their booties on cause it's February and it, it snowed recently outside. And so I go out the front door and start beating on my neighbor's doors to wake them up. And I, we'd already called the cops and fire department. And finally, like we're ready to go out of our house. And so we walk out the front door with, with our dog, um, Jake and you know, walk out the front door and right when we shut the door, the backdraft caught and completely blew the roof off the back of the covered patio, shattered windows, basically melted the entire first floor of our townhouse. Wow. And thank God nobody got hurt, but there were fire trucks everywhere and cop cars. And I'm just like, I'm like, I am screwed in this moment. Like, I don't know what to do, but I need to like figure something out and protect my family. So then the attic kicks back in and starts telling stories that are a bunch of BS and start creating this fantasy of what happened. So 
I could figure out what I was going to do. And that's what I was doing. I was buying time to figure out what I was going to do. Yeah. And then, so that ultimately over time then led to what was why you were incarcerated yeah. was that fire incident. Yep. It definitely was. So I covered it up for a couple of weeks and then, you know, got to a point where I was just like, you know, I can't keep seeing my friends and saying, Oh yeah, it was very tragic. What happened when I'm really the only one that knows what happened, but really I don't because I was there, but I wasn't there. You know what I mean? It's right. And someone once said, well, why did you say it was you? If you, well, that's the only thing that makes sense. <laughs> Right. You know it's I mean? not like you went outside to put all this stuff on the covered patio and some stranger came by and lit this stuff on fire. Yeah. I mean, it was clearly, but you were so disassociated and so yep. disconnected. So then, you know, you're, you're, you're incarcerated for how long? So let me tell you a couple things before we get to that part. So I, in, in June, uh, wow. Thinking about June and, and, you know, and like, this is June, right? Yeah. In June of 2012, I completely told authorities what I did over the phone, just through a circumstance of a couple of phone calls. And because they were saying they were investigating my wife and I'm like, she didn't, she had nothing to do with it. <laughs> you know, I just said it was me, blah, blah, blah. I went through that kind of with this investigator person. But for six months after that, radio silence. Like they would not let me turn myself in. My attorney tried to do that and get that moving along. It was the weirdest thing ever. Yeah. So a couple a couple things happened, which I won't get into. And then on uh, December 2012, 19 felonies and 13 misdemeanors is what it was. It, you know, it was arrested for. And, but they knew where I was the whole time. It was all these things. But here's the thing. When I confessed in June of that year, 100% trusted God with the outcome. Yeah. I, I had to. You know, it's like you had made the decision to return to your authentic self, regardless of what you remembered or not. And once you did that, you were able to to not return necessarily, but really reconnect to a place of absolute faith for yourself. Does that yeah. sound? Yeah, because I, mean, I ran back to church. I ran back to recovery meetings. I ran back to mentors. Like I yeah. did not want to go back there again. You know, I had to see psychiatrists and shrinks and all this stuff to psychologically to figure out what's wrong with me and those things. And this is why I get back to this thing. What I love now is because it got to get back to who the heck are you? Yeah. Who are you? Or this kind of crap can happen. And right. so, um, so long story short, you know, God showed an amazing miracle and took a hundred thousand dollar bond and reduced it to 25 grand. My attorney wow. never seen anything like that before went home that day, that night. And then it was uh, eight months later where we just kind of sat in limbo waiting for like, you know, the sentencing day. And I just waited tables and just kind of bide some time because we didn't know what was going to happen. So that sure. day I was looking at anywhere from two years of work release. It was a two or four years of work release to 56 years is what wow. the time span was open sentencing. But again, I trusted God with the whole process, right? And we had pastors, all these people in the, in the courtroom with us. And you know, I, I never got to say goodbye to my children that morning. Mm. Never gave them a hug or a kiss. Um, didn't want to wake them up. I don't know. I, that's one thing I kind of regret sometimes. Like I wish I would have done that. Sure. Um, and I didn't, they were so young. I mean, my daughter barely remembers a lot of this, but that day I was looking at, uh, the judge said, okay, 13 years. 13 but how years. much time did you actually spend? 10 and a half months. <laughs> See another divine. Yeah. Like every, I, I mean, I think this is such a powerful testament to, you know, whatever your spiritual 
depth is for you, whatever that meaning is for you, whatever that connection, that thread is for each one of you, when you really tap back into that with absolute faith and belief and knowingness, and not because it's something out here that someone said you should believe in, or if you believe in it, then XYZ will happen, or this is the way it's supposed to be, or it's the only way. Everybody has their own thoughts, feelings, and opinions about that. But if you really learn who you are, when you lay your head down on the pillow at night and you trust that part of you and you go, yeah, that is not really who I want to be and how I want to express. And you know, when I went off on that cashier today because I was in a bad mood because my car broke down and I'm like frustrated and whatever, especially now with COVID, right? Like I, I, I have a job or I don't have a job or I'm worried about money or I'm not or whatever it might be. I have to shelter in place and oh my God, I'm going crazy. When you recognize that how I'm behaving is coming from this place of my ego and not from this place of deeply who I am and how I want to express and show up as, and you can tap back into that faith and belief, again, let's call it miracles, or how about let's just call it the divine kind of ways that divinity shows up in our life and says, I've loved you all this time. And I've wanted to shake you to death, but because I love you, I just stood by holding your hand, knowing and trusting that you would come back to a place of trust. And when you were ready, we would continue moving forward and we will take care of this together and I will take care of this. And it sounds like that's kind of what you came back to then. Yeah. I mean, the 10 months I was gone, I literally just got to figure out what, why, why does my faith mean what it means to me? Yeah. And I had time and my wife was home being a single mother, really taking care of all this stuff and the stresses she had to go through. I mean, it was easier for me being gone than her being here. Yeah. You know, and, and I'm grateful that she made the choices that she did instead of listening to that, you know, a lot of chatter and community that just says, leave him, leave him. God said, stay with him. So you know, when I was, when I was able to come home on literally a charge that they don't let into halfway houses with arson because of insurance. Right. Right. But I was, I th- and I can't remember. I want to say it's accurately, but I, I'm pretty sure the director said I was the first person with an arson charge they've ever let in to there because of insurance reasons. But she saw beyond that. She saw a guy that has an MBA, has a loving family, has community, gave me a chance. You know, that first weekend I was back, I got to go to church the first weekend because my mom was in town. Usually wow. it takes two or three months to get that privilege. But again, all these blessings and doors. But in the meantime, I was still holding on to past stuff. And again, those false narratives and baggage and things like those, which wasn't fair to anybody, right? So that's caused yeah. my own pain and hers in recovery. But the cool thing is over time, you know, we started doing more work. I was able to move home uh, April 15th of 2015. So for me, that was tax day, which is now like move home day. <laughs> and, you know, got off parole early, finished probation successfully for the second charge. There were two different charges that made the 13 years. But all on the so way. So wait, I apologize. So of those nineteen charges and thirteen misdemeanors, so thirty-two charges. Yeah, you only ended up with two. Yeah. Wow, another divine blessing. Well, and that well, that's what they do in the system. They throw everything at you, knowing you're going to plead down and say, "Okay, here you go." And fortunately, there was one that was violent, one that was nonviolent, both relating to arson. 
yeah. and suspended the not the violent one as long as I completed this five years of incarceration, right? Right. And stuff like that. And just amazing what happened there because you know, coming home and being reunited with my family and, you know, all the stuff I missed in their life while I was gone. Fortunately, they were pretty young still, you know, but you know, that collateral damage might come out later in their lives. I don't know. But in the journey of all of this and, and, you know, not being able to enter into certain professions because, you know, the big F on your report card, Yeah, (laughs) you know, felony. Um, Oh yeah. And, and, and those restrict a lot of things for people, but I got involved with like prison fellowship to help understand what goes on there. Now I'm an advocate for them because of what you just mentioned, the felony piece, you know, being able to start my own business and doing interventions and recovery coaching and being involved in the community and helping people go forward and find their worth and their passion and all these things. And talking to other couples about, yeah, you can quit and give up, but you got to unpack all your stuff first and give it a real shot. So the cool thing was last year, my wife and I went through this four and a half month program, worked through, I'd probably say, you can't say everything because you never get through everything, but a majority of stuff, which is where this false narrative term came from. And all these things we were holding each other captive to. We went through this hard work and it was painful, but we did it and came out understanding each other a lot better. The month after we were done, I think it was, we were sitting around. My wife's like, you know, honey, the, there's this, the only cruise my wife has said to me I would ever want to go on is the family life marriage cruise. And so she, she loves this family life ministry. And literally, like, after this stuff happened and I see this movie, I'm like, I really want to meet that director and actor. My wife's friend, Aaron, called her up and said, hey, we bought this family life marriage cruise. We can't go. <laughs> Oh my God. We were going to sell it, but we felt like we were supposed to give it to somebody. And we thought about a couple of couples and we figured you guys, would you guys want this? So this last February, my wife and I went on a free three day Christian marriage cruise. There were 2,100 couples on there focusing on their marriage and we got to go on it for free as a gift, you know? Wow. And so God continues to redeem our story in a lot of ways. And he's not done with this at all, but it's all leading towards you know, and again, I think now my wife and I can share our story more understandably than the other person with the same language to where I believe and other people said this before, like, you know, you and your wife are going to be on stage changing lives together. Yeah. And we're getting to that together part, which is cool. And our kids get to see it and they get to see a couple that fought it out and they're, we still have our issues and we yell and argue about this stuff here and there. And, but it's really not even we're not arguing as humans. We're arguing as spiritual beings that are just lost and confused. And we're just taking out on each other because we're there. So I always say it's the spiritual warfare of like good and bad and evil and this and that. But it's like, when I get mad at her, I'm not really mad at my wife for whatever my own immature reasons are. I'm at the spirit of whatever the heck is happening between us that I want out of our marriage and out of our life. Like, you know, it's never going to be out completely, but when you can just look beyond what's happening and realize it's more, of just something that wants to tear couples apart. Well, we're not about that. We're, we're in this for the long haul and just giving people those messages of hope and stuff that whatever's on paper for people that are experiencing prison systems and stuff, whatever's on paper, don't believe it. Yes. Don't believe it. Cause my story, there's a whole nother hour. I could talk about what God has done with what the court system and things said would never happen. And they did. And I'm like, dude, it's right. about faith. Absolutely. And 
you know, it's interesting because, you know, yes, of course, the court systems throw all this stuff at you to then pare it down. But still, from 33 types of charges down to just two, from being allowed to be the first person ever with an arson, quote unquote, conviction, because yes, it was technically arson, but was intentional? No. Are you an arsonist in that way, the way the narrative is always run about arsonists? No doesn't matter there's rules and they have these you know these kind of policies and yet you were allowed you know to be granted access to live at this halfway house you were allowed to go to church when it's something that takes months like you said before every single part of our journey is really another part of the foundation that leads us kind of like how i would look at it is like a pyramid right you know, and when we reach that pinnacle place of the pyramid of our life, so to speak, is where we kind of go, ah, and we draw our last breath because we no longer need the body to make the climb. Yeah. Right. Like we've, but all along the way, if we have faith and we have belief, a curious thing you just said, though, and I'm curious about this, and I'd love to see the distinction. It's an interesting way to look at it when you say that, like, if you and your wife have a disagreement and you're feeling mad about something, that you're feeling it from a spiritual place. And I'm curious, is it really from a spiritual place, you think? Or is it that, that the humanness of Rob and Jennifer are in their ego and their narratives and their stories and some of those past layers that are still clouding the brilliant diamond of spirit inside? Are, are coming out and beginning to like crack and be peeled away, but we're not really sure of them. And so we react to that because what it feels and sounds more like from my perspective only, and so I'm curious what your perspective is on this, is that it's more about the humanness and that you that it is a, like a madness or a frustration with the human stuff, but because you both are so spiritual and have such a deep connection, that it then clouds that piece, right? Just for a moment. And when you can pull away from that, like human egoic stuff and allow that layer to kind of peel away, you both can once again see that brilliant diamond shining in each other. And all the other human stuff then becomes, you know, inconsequential and insignificant. It's like in the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, it talks about the ability to react or respond. Yes, exactly. And, and when we can sit in this freedom to choose our response moment and not get triggered by what, by being a reactive fool, right? And you can be more of a responsive person of like, okay, let me pause for just a second, like five seconds, three seconds, yeah, can completely diffuse the situation. Well, you said, well, you said, well, you said, well, you said this, <laughs> you know. And it's like, geez, like two little kids, right? Grow up, but. Right. When we can sit in that freedom to choose, when I can sit in my freedom to choose my response to whatever's happening, it's going to be more loving and compassionate and caring than uh, defensive and attacking and hurt. Right. So, I, so I've learned a lot more of responding to what's happening instead of reacting. Because usually my reaction is my human humanness and my ego and stuff. But totally. Oh, absolutely. Because reaction comes about because we have an experience. We get it gets stored away. We get re-triggered. That's, that's why we call it a reaction. Mm -hmm. We act upon that trigger again and boom, instead of responding through choice. Yeah. 
I was just curious because you said, you know, it's like you get mad from this, you're mad at the spiritual like essence of it. And I was just curious, do you really think that that's you're upset or mad at the spiritual essence or just that the spiritual essence has been interrupted between the two of you? Well, I mean, I feel like, you know, most time it's really like, again, I'm not really mad at my wife. It's more of what's happening between us. Yeah. Right. right? Exactly. And so yeah. when that's why I talk like spiritual attacks, because if I want to be more loving, caring and all these things, like in, in the Bible, it talks about why do I continue to do the things I don't want to do? Yeah. Right. And why do I not do the things I want to do? Like, yeah. I want to rub your back and love you, but there's something in me that says, no, I'm not going to give that to you. Right, that emotional yeah. intimate, that intimacy, anorexia part. So, so I believe what the, what's happening, the dynamics between it is what I say. You know, you know, leave. You know, get out of here. Whatever this thing is that's going on between us. The moment, yeah. I love. Like, do you feel solid now? As you know, you were released, and as you learned and grew through all of these pieces, and still, you know, choosing every day to express in your spiritual expression, right? As this human living in a form, do you feel much more, I guess, solid now on being able to do that more often, less of that emotional roller coasterness, which doesn't mean you still don't have some arguments or, you know, rough times, not necessarily with your wife, but just in life, you know, some disappointments, some frustrations, things like that. Does it feel easier to navigate through all that human experiential stuff though now, because you feel like you have more of that expression of who you really are and you know how, and how you're choosing and wanting to express. Yes, I definitely feel that way. And one thing I want to throw out there too, is I am also 16, 17 months free from gambling. So that's been a great blessing. Yeah. Blessing on my mental health. Yeah. What I what I can relate Yes, I feel a lot more stable and solid. What I can relate my emotional irregulation to a lot of times is my diet. Really? Exercise. When I eat yeah. a lot of sugar and stuff like that too, I can completely see a more restless, irritable, discontented person because my body's not happy with me Yeah. in those regards. So, right. But from a, a solid grounding standpoint, knowing who I am mm-hmm. and where my worth comes from and all those things, heck yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. So if you had some advice to give to, you know, my audience about how to really become a spiritually expressed human, how to really navigate the human experience and become that, as I will continue to say, that spiritually expressed badass. And to me, badass, yeah, it might be a swear word to some people, but to me, badass is your authentic self, that brilliant shining diamond. And I say badass because it used to have such a negative connotation, right? Like badass was like this dark, negative, kind of unhealthy person who was mean. And I think over many years now, we look at that from a place of, wow, that person is a badass because what we see is that they're being authentically themselves. They're being true to who they are. Like I look at you and call you a badass because you are this guy who went through some really like crazy, rough, horrific circumstances. And yet you have continued to bounce back, deepen each time in a betterment 
and, and recognition of a higher version of you, even if it felt like a horrible roller coaster still, right? You just kept moving forward saying, I, I just need to keep being me. And I don't necessarily know who that guy is, but I'm willing because I know there's more. And to me, that's the epitome of badassery. So if badassery, I like that. Ba- badassery, it's it's an empowering word. It to me it is, right? So is there a piece of advice that you would give to people to really become their spiritually expressed badass as they're navigating through the human experience? Pausing and reflecting is huge. Yeah. Pen to paper is huge to just journal. But a good friend of mine, Chris Pluckenpole, once said, do not let your external circumstances determine who you are inside of you. Oh, let's pause on that one. Let's give pause to that. Do not let your external circumstances. Say it again. Do not let your external circumstances dictate really, really who you are inside. Who you are. Yes. He does it from a perspective of Christ and God, but it's, but regardless, whatever the, if you can define yeah, what, who you really truly are, not from like, yeah, just who you are, then whatever's going on out here. Yeah. I mean, especially with COVID-19, right? Your job can go away. Right. Now you're no longer a CEO and this can go away and. Now you're stuck at wife, I mean, at home, and you're, you realize your wife drinks too much or maybe pops a couple too many zannies. I don't know. But right. all of a sudden, these things. So, but yeah, when you can just be good with who you are, no matter what's happening outside, that's like the calm within the chaos. Yes. You are not your experiences. You are not the roles that you play. And that, to me, is why I kind of revamped and went in this new direction with the show and change the name because it is about you becoming who you are at the core and choosing to be irrespective of the outside circumstances, past, present, or even future in your life and not the roles that you play. Cause that has not all the roles will change for a while. You were an incarcerated adult inmate. Yep. You're not playing that role anymore, right? Yeah, I love that. Thank you so much. Now, if people wanted to learn more about you and your work, because you really work now with people, you're so, so passionate about really wanting to help people see and find and live that positive change, you know, whether it's within the addictions world or, you know, someone who is in prison and, and, you know, going to be released at some point, or they've come out of prison, or they're just struggling in their place of recovery, or just really want a better life. Oh, and you're a phenomenal speaker, and and your journey of persistence and faith and inspiration is so incredible that that in and of itself is incredibly inspiring and helpful just to hear. That's one of the reasons I was like, oh God, I just gotta have Rob on the show. How would they get in touch with you and and what could they expect if they did get in touch with you? Uh, well, thank you for sharing that. I think I'm blushing right now. That was, that was very nice of you. <laughs> but it's true. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, yeah. And that's, that's how I want to be known Yeah, for is, is, is that, but you know, my, my, the easiest way is just go check out. I'm always coming up with new projects, things, 
to encourage people and just being really creative and innovative, but they can always go to my lifted from the rut.com website and just check out what I'm up to and between coaching or new programs. And I mean, I love to stay in touch with people. So I am always doing creative programming. So if they just go on the stay in touch page and just put their you know name and email. in. I love to just keep people posted that way. Sure. But okay. I always throw my number out there too. If you guys just want to call me up and say, Hey man, I really need to talk to you. And I want you to know, I mean this when I say, here's my phone number. You can call me if you want to call me. Yeah. Cause I've had people that have seen me four or five months later. It's like, dude, I heard you on this radio show and you gave your number out. And is this really you and my phone? I was like, yeah, that's me. I, I just didn't think you really wanted me to call. So, I know people don't, people think that we're just kidding around when we say that, like, just just for the sake of saying it, it's like, no, really, we do want to talk with you because this is why we do what we do. So again, go to www.lifted, L-I-F-T-E-D, from F-R-O-M, the, T-H-E, rut, R-U-T, just as it said, liftedfromtherut.com. And if you are interested in, you know, talking with Rob Moore, he's offering generously, you know, a, a coaching call with you to really help you seek that freedom of truth that you're looking for, whether it's from addiction or in your recovery or in your life, reach out, go to liftedfromtherut.com, look at uh, uh, the coaching tab, right, Rob? Yep. You have the coaching tab. You can actually go straight to the bottom of the recovery coaching tab and just schedule a free 30-minute call with me. Yeah, perfect. And you'll see that where you can actually schedule it. All of that will be in the show notes. Look, thank you so much, Rob, for being here. I am so honored. You know, again, I met you through my work with Podcast Magazine, and I just, I, I knew this, you know, I truly believe that every human being on the planet is special and unique, and we all have gifts and talents to share. But as much as I can love human nature and human beings, I'm not going to want to have all of them on my show. And there was something just so incredibly special about you and your story and your history simply because you were thrown so much and yet you never lost that faith, even though it kind of was hidden away for a while, that thread. And that's kind of how I have described what happened for me in my life when people would say, how did you not become this crack smoking prostitute who hated men and distrusted the world, or how did you not become this or that? Or how did you, how were you able to forgive or that, 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 whatever. Right. And I've always said it was because of that knowingness of who we were at the core at four that I lost sight of. And I had to reconnect to, and it was that connection of our spiritual essence, whatever that means for every person. And you just are the epitome of that through all of your experiences and all the roller coaster and the ups and downs that I just felt people need to hear more of, of you and your story. So thank you. I am so honored that you are here and we have spent this time together. I really appreciate you being here. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to be part of the badassery club now. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and you absolutely are. This is a badass, spiritually expressed human being who's just really also a damn nice guy. So reach out to him if you're looking for some help because Rob can definitely help take you there. 
for now, you know that I love you all. And I'm so grateful that you come each week to really tune in to how you can express your spiritual badassery in human form, how you can navigate through the human experience and really learn how not to become your past, the circumstances of your present, and the potential of your future if it's not in alignment with who you are at the core. For now, continue being the spiritual badass, spiritually expressed person that you are. I love you all. I'll see you next week. Have an awesome, safe, healthy week. Ciao for now. You've been listening to The Spiritually Expressed Human, where conformity is not an option, getting out of the box is critical, and spiritually expressed means becoming the badass of your life while attaining freedom and inner peace. If you're ready to start that process, go to susandesenzi.com and click on the free gift tab to get started. You can also get the link in the show notes. Thank you for being here. And if you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe on your platform of choice. Until next time, be the spiritually expressed badass you are meant to be.